everyone. It is so good to be back with you all, uh, virtually even as distance and COVID has separated us physically. Um, there's still just been so much goodness that has come out of our time here. And I'm so excited to jump into this next series. I'll be honest, this is my fifth or sixth time trying to record this today for just a number of reasons. So I hope that these thoughts uh, that I'm bringing will be helpful and thorough and hopefully straightforward. Um, But I would love to start today with just a bit of centering. Maybe it's just because I need it. Uh, Maybe you need it too. But just take a big breath in. Hold it for a couple of seconds. Let it out. Feel your chest expand with each breath in and fall. Bring to mind um, the things that have hurt this week. Give them space. Bring to, if you feel like it, um, the things that have brought you peace and joy to mind. Hold them too. you identify as a woman, um, feel free to bring to mind just what it is like to experience the world through your identity. If you don't identify as a woman, um, feel free to bring to mind uh, those that you know that are powerful, have influenced you have held space for you, have taught you, hold them in your thoughts as well. We are never um, completely one extreme or the other. And as we explore this topic and these stories, it will very quickly and obviously show just the complexity of what it means to be a woman, uh, to be a part of religion, to be part of revolution. And I plan on opening today with a little bit of my own life history and um, would place a content warning here that if you need to skip forward, um, skip a couple minutes ahead to get into the rest of the sermon. But to show just some of these intersections, um, one lens, one story of what it means to exist in these kind of three major parts of our topic. I was born, I was born the only daughter of a fundamentalist evangelical Christian family. At seven, I was assaulted for the first time. It happened in a church during a New Year's Eve service. At 11, I experienced my first attraction to girls. Maybe 12 or 13, received my first painfully overwhelming amount of catcalling that caused me to have anxiety attacks. At 13, I led on my first worship team as one of two women on the team. At 17, I was told that I was going to hell. 
at 20, I was told I would never be allowed to pastor a church because I'm a woman, but could lead worship or be the children's director. At 21, I was told I could only ever be in a committed friendship with a woman and was questioned whether my leadership in my campus ministry was allowed. At 21, I had to deny multiple church positions and withdraw my acceptance into a seminary in Colorado because they still practice conversion therapy. At 22, my coming out to my family didn't go so well at first. And at 23, I'm living into intentional space that values the intersection of my identities. I am one story. These are a few details. And I can guarantee that many women you talk to will have some sort of timeline that involves experiences negatively related to their gender. And this is especially present in a number of Christian denominations where the value and worth of women, regardless of their involvement, leadership ability, etc., is absolutely disregarded. I am only 23. This isn't just a generational thing that's going to phase out. It's not just a sexualized thing that happens when I'm out in the world. This is the DNA of the history and tradition of where we come from. And obviously my story is extremely intersectional as well. But we cannot deny the history of Capital C Church and how it impacts even us here. I'm gonna try and cover a bit of the history, the what and why of where we are now in regards to honoring women in the church uh, without it feeling too much like a history lesson. But if you're into that, uh, stay tuned because it will be woven into the stories and messages of the rest of the month's series. And I wanna really leave room for the what now question for our next three speakers to cover, um, and I just think that their perspectives are going to offer so much more than I can alone. So a bit of a roadmap for where we're going today. I want to start out with just a bite-sized bit of history, talking about ordination, um, what that has meant. I want to jump into a couple passages in Luke, uh, taking from Jesus's life and ministry, what it has to say about the inclusion of women. From there, I want to jump into the disruptive nature of the gospel and the disruptive women who have helped get us here. From there, I want to kind of provide more of a a roadmap for where we are going, where it leaves us, um, and what is absolutely true uh, about the inclusion of women and their necessity to revolution. So, without further ado, um, jumping into the history of women inclusion in ministry. And this history is a funny thing um, because modern history will lead you to believe that women's inclusion is a lot shorter than it may be seems because there has been a lot of rewriting of history going on 
according to some of the books, uh, some of the first women to be ordained and recorded uh, happened in about the 18th, 1800s. Um, people like Olympia Brown uh, as a Universalist, Anna Howard Shaw as a United Methodist. And this might seem long ago, but let me remind you that ordained ministry and uh, being sent out, being called, is present in the sending out of the disciples. Women were present in Jesus's ministry, included in leadership, and then gradually excluded from church ministry and ordination. See, women were capable of being ordained up until the 13th century. And obviously, ordination meant something a little different in that time than now. Uh, but women's inclusion was hard to miss. They were considered equally ordained as any other man serving the church as an official vocational role. And only in the 12th and 13th centuries did theologians uh, devise another definition of ordination. And this definition is the one that we're probably more familiar with today or um, have more of a background relating to where ordination granted the recipient not a position within a community, but the power that they can exercise. Um, so this is talking about things like consecration of the elements, um, orders that were serving at the altar, uh, roles like priest, deacon, subdeacon, things like that uh, were all coming to be. And all these earlier orders were no longer considered to be orders at all. Um, so not only did they rewrite the rules, but they rewrote the history. Instead, spreading the idea that women had never performed these roles at all. So far from the truth. But yet, like, not much has changed since that 13th century definition went into effect. Once it was determined that it was benefiting those who wanted to maintain power, it's difficult to make steps forward. Certain denominations like Southern Baptists still don't believe in the ordination of women, um, although there are other denominations that have begun to allow women as ministers. Now, this doesn't guarantee that they will be accepted or fully supported by their congregation. Um, there's still so much to prove and so much that happens um, that's maybe more behind the scenes. For us and our history with Mission Hills being part of the Disciples of Christ, um, the disciples are believers in the priesthood of all believers in that all people baptized are called to minister to others with diverse spiritual gifts. Um, and the order of ministry is this specific subset um, of all believers who are called that these people are specifically suited for pastoral ministry. Um, and congregations will use different terms for these people, whether it's pastor, minister, reverend, um, but because of this possibility of priesthood of all believers, we fit into that accepting side of women in ministry, um, or egalitarian. And yet, I've described that this isn't true for all churches. Um, 
It doesn't matter how long you've been in ministry, how much behind the scenes work you do, or your obvious calling into ministry, if the politics of the church aren't accepting. So where does that fit in comparison to Jesus, his life, his own ministry? What does it have to say about the inclusion of women in the church? So in Luke 7, 36-50, we see one example of Jesus' ministry flipping the status quo. Um, he is having a meal with the Pharisees. And a woman who was from the city uh, learns that he's eating here. And she is described as a great sinner. Um, so she comes to him. She is weeping. Her tears are washing his feet. She dries them with her hair. She anoints them with oil. And the Pharisee sees this, the one who'd invited Jesus over, and says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. And the Pharisee's trying to do a couple of things here, right? He's trying to remove the authority from Jesus, uh, from his namesake. He's calling him out um, and is also using the woman, her uh, identity as a sinner, as a prop. And Jesus, you know, retorts back talking about how um, this example of there's two people who are in debt. Uh, to this one creditor and he cancels both of them when they can't pay. One person owes more than the other and Jesus says like who do you think loves the creditor more? Simon responds um, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Jesus then addresses uh, the woman talks about and to her that her sins are forgiven, that her faith has saved her, um, and is, is teaching in this moment, not just the Pharisee there, uh, but the woman as well. And this was a taboo thing, that instruction would be offered to women um, in this society, right? The whole women are quiet, uh, they are in submission to their husbands, um, they play specific roles in society, all of that would, would have been true. Um, and yet, Jesus is doing these things where he's flipping the narrative. Now there are, of course, texts in the scriptures um, that have been used for the exclusion rather than inclusion of women. And these come from uh, primarily 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, talking about how women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, uh, for it's disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Cool, right? Super fun. Um, I'll offer my thoughts here, but don't want to spend too much time um, it's mostly just to give us a bearing on how the scriptures have been used for the exclusion of women and supporting it biblically.
So if you read it as is, uh, you know, the words that are offered in these modern translations, uh, the message and, of course, bias is super clear and really easy to mold into excluding women from ordination. And ordination, I'm just even more so using as a, a general term for uh, ministry that is recorded, um, more or less. Uh, but there are some scholars who suggest that these specific verses in First Corinthians um, 14, 34 to 35 were not written by Paul, but was inserted by a copyist, or it's a question from Paul's opponents in Corinth where Paul then denounces uh, later on. And one of the views is that the specific type of speaking here that is prohibited is like babbling. It's the talking to hear your own voice talk. It's uh, interrupting of the message rather than speaking out of authority and offering instruction. And this would have applied to all persons in the worship that's described. Um, and there are still other ideas about what this can come to mean. Um, and a lot of things that we can bring into the arguments around this passage. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, similar words are offered that women should learn in quietness, full submission. Um, the speaker is saying, I do not permit women to teach or to assume authority over a man. Um, so again, really fun, super clear cut. But here, one of the views, too, is that to talk about assuming authority, the words used um, is not the usual word for positive or active authority. So rather, it's probably talking about a negative form or abuse of authority. So this kind of prohibition is potentially against some sort of abusive activity, but not against the appropriate exercise of teaching and authority in the church. Um, and this is just to add on to, of course, the cultural context uh, where the roles and acceptance and um, celebration of gender is a lot different now. And yet, in that context that these authors are speaking out of, of 1 Corinthians, of 1 Timothy, Jesus is still continuing to lean into an inclusive version of the gospel. It is completely disruptive of the narratives that are offered even in these other books and texts. So... Jesus is interrupting the narrative, not just with the woman who is sinful, uh, but does it later on as well. I mean, the first few verses right after the passage in Luke 7 says that some women accompany Jesus. So not just the disciples are going with him, um, but there are women that are also following, receiving teaching, um, aiding him in a variety of ways, whether it was financial resource um, or other, like these are things that are still, while they're slight, are still documented um, in the gospel. And he also disrupts the narrative in visiting Martha and Mary. And he comes, he sits, um, you know, this is the whole story of 
Mary just comes and sits at his feet and listens to what he's saying and his instruction. And then Martha gets all kind of flustered that uh, her sister has left to do all the work by herself. Um, And then Jesus responds that you're worried and distracted by many things. Um, Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Not only did Jesus go allow go and allow women to interact in a way that completely went against the norm, but he beckoned them into ministry and teaching. If we look at these examples, we see Jesus taking the time to teach. And his first instinct is to be present with women as they are present with him. And Laura Jean Truman has uh, a take on the story this week that absolutely rocked me. Uh, She says, I wonder if Martha was so angry at Mary because she wanted to sit at Jesus' feet too, but hadn't given herself permission to be still. Sometimes we're mad at folks living the life we wish we were brave enough to live. We frame it as a moral issue, but really we are just so sad. And I would just continue to expand this because I know so many women who face burnout in ministry. And often I think it comes down to there's this expectation to go above and beyond um, because of our gender um, and this need to prove in a space that values productivity, that values uh, looking good for or looking inclusive for the sake of getting that gold star. There are women who are not only uh, teaching and offering word of wisdom, but are also doing all of those menial tasks too. Um, And I wonder if how it would look uh, to be in a space that I feel I am grateful to have experienced um, here where that burden is shared and so that we can all come to the feet of Jesus to beckon in that rest. Last week, Ryan talked about the gospel being intrusive, and I would add that the gospel is disruptive. Much like how the uncontrollable power of powerful women has disrupted the political and religious structures so many times before, um, I believe the root of this comes from um, an example of Jesus' own disruptive nature, which was learned, of course, even from women before him. He's a political activist. He'd be there at the protest. He'd attend a house church led by a woman. Women have been part of the root of revolution and of the church. Often it's not what's seen on the surface. Instead of the roots, you see the strong tree. Ones that hold down and have made the church strong. But without these strong roots, it would fall in the storm. G.D. Anderson has a great quote that feminism isn't about making women stronger. Women are already strong. It's about changing the way the world perceives that strength. 
Women were present through much of the early church, were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Church mothers have done a great deal to shape the environment and accessibility into religious space. Just as roots break the ground, women have had to be disruptive to the status quo to make change in the church, whether it benefited them directly or not. And there are a number of incredible women um, from the mystics in our history to uh, some of the brave leaders who are taught more as an afterthought than as truly part of the Christian historical narrative. And even within Jesus's time and timeline, um, there are women who are named, uh, which is pretty disruptive in and of itself. There are the women who are named amongst Jesus' disciples, um, Mary the mother, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, Mary of Bethany, Joanna, Susanna, and Salome. There are women who are named by Paul. Um, Some were house church leaders like Chloe or Nympha. Um, Some like Mary, or I'm going to mess up all of these names, but Tryphena or Trifosa, named by Paul, who worked very hard for the ministry. Um, Priscilla was part of planning churches. Um, there are two that worked for the Philippian church. There's Phoebe, there's uh, Junius. But even as these women are named uh, by Paul or in the scripture, we don't hear their voices. So things like the Book of Mary is not included in the canon. Um, It's a completely different experience to hear a story about someone than from that person directly. And yet, even with not having their voices highlighted um, in scripture in the way that I wish that we did, um, it does not discount the work that has been done, whether in accompanying Jesus or modern time. There's something so utterly profound that women in the Bible are performing some of the most intent work in ministry in that these women are performing a ministry of presence. And they don't need to be named for us to collect just how powerful this presence would have been. Of course they should be, but especially when texts like in 1 Timothy are still used to dismiss the presence of God in these women who are offering their lives and ministry. The disconnect is especially obvious when you compare church membership demographics to the demographic of leadership conventions, the ones that are making major decisions for the church. Despite their predominance in the pews, women are often shut out of formal leadership or discouraged from pursuing it in the first place. But God wasn't and isn't afraid to use women as a powerful voice for the authority of the gospel. A woman in the Old Testament is the first one to give God a name. Mary holds and ushers the Son of God into the world. Jesus didn't raise up women and see their testament just for us to tear them down again and call unholy what God is called holy. The gospel came into the world to be a disruptive force that turned reality upside down. 
It was not meant to speak quietly, to hold its breath, to minimize itself to avoid backlash. There is divine power in the works and witness of women to the person of God that would not otherwise be known by the rest of humanity without it. That is the root of revolution. Women have been the image bearers and protectors of generational religious knowledge in ways that do not minimize other genders or their experience or testament to God, right? I will be damned if I hear things um, that make it seem like lifting up women discounts others. When power is threatened, even if it's going to make for a better society, the reactive force is one out of defensive insecurity. And sometimes it can be easy to forget the reality of what it's like across the board um, when we've been able to enjoy a little bit of a bubble here at Mission Hills. But there are these traps, um, those who have fallen for this kind of muscular Christianity that deems uh, masculine authority as a default and the inclusion of women as the special status. Like, look at us. We are so progressive for saying that women are all right. And in the way that I think toxic masculinity isn't helpful for men, just as it's much not helpful for anyone else, um, it's still not benefiting anyone to be dismissive as half of the population being able to lead by the Holy Spirit's calling. Um, and so for, for people who are still attending churches um, or are part of leadership structures that discount women, um, I ask, what are we trying to fool? What are we trying to prove by holding on to some of this narrative? Women are faithful disciples of Christ. They attend his death. They witness his resurrection. And yet their contribution is not always acknowledged or is outright dis rejected. In the passage of Luke 7, 36 through 50, it holds up the sinful woman as a model of faithful discipleship. And yet she is used as a prop, dismissed by the men in power. And I'm not saying that this is true across the board, um, but I think it can be easy to forget some of the reality that is being faced by so many women. Um, there are trends today as well as in this gospel that point to the tendency of those in power in religious communities, uh, most often right, men, to hold on to power rather than opening it up to outsiders like this woman um, who show the anointing of the spirit. This week I've had the privilege of talking with other women, uh, female ordained ministers, um, or just people who are in ministry, and over and over again um, have been reminded of the perseverance that it takes to be part of religion, be part of revolution, um, especially for folks who identify as a woman. And 
while we can maybe enjoy uh, some of the grace and space that we have here, the work is far from over. And I will be honest, it took me a long time to find the words this week uh, because it felt like such an undertaking. How do we sit in this time and still have to convince so many of the power that the testament of women hold? If Jesus' gospel is meant to be disruptive and women are following suit in their disruptive power of the status quo, what is left that we can deny that Jesus is and has and was working uh, through the testimony of those bearing the image of the holy. There is still so much left to uncover. And again, these are just pieces of history, whether it be my own, of the historical narrative, of the women featured in the gospel, all of these sides inform us that there is a disconnect between the hope, the the kingdom of God, and where we are. How things can be rewritten, uh, left out, changed, so that it fits um, a, a narrative that continues to uphold certain senses of identity and power. So where does that leave us? The next three speakers um, will tackle the question of what now, along with continuing to explore the history of feminine spirituality, radical feminist theology, and how we might explore the divine from a womanist perspective. Not only will this allow us as a community to open ourselves up to how many more possibilities there are of experiencing spirituality and the divine, but it also gives voice to a number of new perspectives that are so incredibly beautiful and thought-provoking. So I hope you'll join me in welcoming the voices of Maria, Sochi, and Trista this month. As always, I cannot ever sum up just how grateful I am for the openness of this communal community and how week after week, even during a pandemic, we engage in such incredible conversation that pushes us further and further into exploring what it means to be human. Women are an incredibly disruptive and wonderful force to be reckoned with and have been powerful vessels of an equally disruptive gospel. So let us remember them and honor them, past, present, and future. We continue to do the work to make sure that all voices, all aspects, all image bearers of the divine um, are welcomed and celebrated here.